It is funny that all the jobs I have where I work with people, including teaching, but whenever I get up to preach, I get nervous because I have to rightly deliver God's word. And yet, as I preach, I usually find myself feeling more and more bold. And as we all know from our reading this morning, Scott has been leading us through the book of Esther. And I think he's been doing a phenomenal job bringing us God's word. Pray I can continue that this morning. Because we need to remember that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. So, we know that sometimes this world, things in this life, can make it feel like God isn't there. So we need these reminders from time to time that our sovereign God is always there, putting the pieces together, orchestrating the parts of our lives, even if we can't see it. And it makes me think of going to a coffee shop. Some of you might know that I'm actually trying to open a coffee shop. I work in a coffee shop. And I like making coffee. Because coffee is one of those things that brings people together. People hold that cup and they're like, mm, it's so good. So when I make coffee, I know that I am there making something that can make somebody happy. And it's interesting how many times people think they can tell the barista how to do their job. Even to the point of giving not just bad advice, but wrong advice. So that sometimes it's, no, you have to do it this way. It's like, that's not how coffee's made. <laughs> you have to mix the things together this way. That's going to change the flavor. Well, my barista does it this way. Are you sure it's a barista? Because that's not how it's done. This is what I like. That's not even coffee. <laughs> Some people will then complain that they don't even know what the barista is doing behind the counter. Are they doing it right? I can't even see. What are you doing? Why can't you show me? All because they can't see what the barista is doing. And I always want to point out to some people, you know, if you're hassling your barista, you're more likely to have something wrong happen. <laughs> Not that I do that. The worst I've ever done to somebody, I'll be honest. They wanted it half sweet. So I made it fully sweet. <laughs> but take it from a barista. Most of us, most of the time, know what we're doing. We're trained to do this stuff. We have knowledge of things most people don't have knowledge of. We're not the biggest fans of constantly having our work questioned and having to answer quality-related questions because if we do it hundreds of times a day, hopefully we're doing it right, right? Coffee obviously isn't for everybody, 
My dad, for example, who has a son who works in coffee, trying to own a coffee shop, can't stand coffee, says it is a bitter cup of darkness. It is like somebody liquefied the bitter night of, or the dark night of the soul and put it into a cup. Who would want to drink that? And there are some people that have legitimate medical reasons they can't drink coffee. But for everybody else, with a good barista, that cup of bitterness can become something delicious and good. But you may be asking, what does coffee have to do with the book of Esther? And I will explain it, I promise. But we are in chapter 8, where we know the Jewish people have been given the bitterest of cups. They have been told their people will all be slaughtered. Every last one is to be killed. But we know, and we can see, that God is going to do something good with it. So Esther Chapter 8, verse 1, on that day, what day is this? This is the day that Esther held a banquet and said, this Haman wants to kill me and my people. And of course, I won't tell the same joke, but... We know that same Haman uh, was himself killed by the very means he intended to kill Mordecai. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we see on this day that Mordecai should have been lifted up and killed. Instead, his enemy is killed, and he is lifted up in promotion and given that other guy's job. Can you imagine how the Jews felt? Because they were supposed to be Killed, But now, one of their own is the second highest in the kingdom. It kind of reminds me of elections here in the United States. When a leader we don't like is elected, we whine and complain and riot and burn buildings. No, we feel sad. But when a leader we like is elected, we whine and complain and riot and burn. But no, we're happy and we think to ourselves, even if we don't like everything they do, hey, finally, one of our people is in office. Maybe now some good things will happen. Maybe now some good decreeing and declaring can truly come about. So let's see what happens. Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan 
of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter <clears throat> to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said, to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So we'll stop here and notice a few things. First, how does Esther, the queen, approach her husband, the king. Keeping in mind, she's held a feast for him, and he defended her honor. This is clearly somebody he loves, but she still comes humbly. She still has to await and see if she is still in his favor. He has to hold up his scepter before she can come. And it's because we remember that this is the same king who was displeased with a woman and had her banished. Displeased. <laughs> and we know anybody who enters the court of the king unbidden can be killed if they are not summoned. So second, we notice how Esther asks the king, the one who just granted permission so that she would not die, bowing at his feet, weeping, pleading, begging. This is a contrite woman who knows that her people are still in danger, even if she and her cousin might not be harmed because, hey, they live in the palace of the king, right? Who's going to go after people inside his palace? But we also see the dangerous side, not just of the king, but of his government. Because what does it say? <clears throat> Anything a king decrees cannot be revoked. So because of this law, Imagine what the king is now thinking. Okay, I wrote a law. Yep. Said it's good. I now want to get rid of it. What could happen? Hmm. There will be people who still want to do this. There will be people who will say, you broke the law. I could have civil war. Best case scenario. <laughs> so what does he, or what does this tell us? He now has to think through all of his impulsiveness because this is the man who was displeased by his disobedient wife and banished her, who signed a decree based on somebody saying, please, because I really don't like this one guy, can we kill everybody? <laughs> somebody who 
almost never thinks about the future. But while he now has this problem that he helped to create because of his impulsiveness and his selfishness, he now has two pretty good counselors, his wife, the queen, and godly Mordecai, who's already proven he could save his life. He can put his trust in these two to figure out a way around his first decree so that it's not revoked, but he can still save the people of his wife. So what do they do? Verse 9. <clears throat> the king's scribes were summoned in that time, in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, and the governors, and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, saying, er, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On the one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. <clears throat> and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. We remember from chapter 3 that Haman made this decree on the 13th of the first month, Nisan that all the Jews will be killed in the 12th month Adar. Now, pretty sure he didn't use the Jewish calendar, but we're getting this from a Jewish perspective, so we know what days these happen on by their calendar. Does anybody know what the 13th of Nisan is? It's the day before Passover. Passover starts on the 14th. So imagine the day before the Jews celebrate their redemption. They're told, oh, in a year you're all going to be killed. Can you imagine what that would be like? I kind of thought of it as, while it's their Passover, what about one of our biggest holidays? Christmas. I did a search of just the past 15 years. Of thousands of people who've been killed on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Christians at church who gathered to celebrate the birth of their God, their Lord, their Savior. The most recent was just this last year. 
in Myanmar, Burma. When churches were stormed and hundreds were killed in church. Six years ago, Berlin, Germany, when a man stole a truck and drove through Christmas celebrations downtown, killing people gathered together at a Christmas event. 2008 in Congo, when churches were raided and anybody inside was killed. If you want me to bring it a little more home, that same Christmas in California, when somebody wanted to ruin the Christmas of a family he now hates. Imagine yourself at a Christmas Eve service finding out everybody you know is going to be killed. And yet, here are Esther and Mordecai, two months and ten days after this decree is issued. And they are able to write their own decree that in about nine months, on the thirteenth day of Adar, Jews, you can defend yourselves. You can kill those who come after you. You can destroy, you can plunder from anyone who attacks you. So let's take a little step back from even this. This is self-defense. This is not, okay, on this day you can go out and you can find people to fight. No, if they come after you to kill you, defend yourself. And we might even say, well, why does it say women and children? But look at our world today, especially throughout the Muslim world. How many times are women and children pulled in, have bombs strapped to them, carry guns into buildings? This isn't a, they wanted to do it to us, let's do it to them. This is, they will come after you, and if they do, defend yourself. Now, am I saying we should always simply defend ourselves? No. There are times that we should take it, but I will tell you this. If anybody ever came into my house and they attacked my wife and they were threatening to do things to her, I don't know if that person would leave my house alive. I'm going to defend my wife. But I also pray that in that moment, God will give me the strength, not necessarily to stay my hand, but that I might not kill him. Because our focus should never just be us. It should be, what can we do for God? If I have the opportunity to preach Christ to somebody who's even attacking my wife, I want that opportunity. I'm not saying I'll get that opportunity, because I'm... Still a human man who would be very upset. So this is not simply a go do what they were going to do. This is defend yourself. Wait for them to attack, then defend yourself. And this is pretty good news. 
but I know a lot of people still have the big question. Why would God even allow this to have happened? Well, like we've discussed, I love coffee, and that's why God... No. (laughs) Ten years ago, if you got my wife and me to drink coffee, if it was usually add a little coffee to the cream and sugar. And then I met a friend with a coffee shop who made great coffee, and we started drinking coffee so that we can now drink black coffee. But we became coffee snobs <laughs> so that you know, we know there's much, much better than Starbucks and Duncan, a lot of the big chains, basically, so that we'll go out of our way to find good coffee or tell people, no, thank you, I don't need any of your coffee. For the record, we do drink the coffee here. But I tell you all of this because I'm going to show you a video that I hope will explain this a little bit before I go into it further. And I'll tell you this, I had to set this up because I don't know if James Hoffman is a Christian. He might attend the Church of England. I don't know. He never talks about it in any of his videos. He is a World Coffee Championship winner, so he knows a thing or two about coffee and how to make it taste good. But I think he really explains why bad things can be good. When you learn to taste, there's something really important that no one really talks about. The process of learning to taste, developing that skill, is great because you can detect, define, describe, kind of communicate what you're tasting. And beyond that, You don't just know that something is good, you can explain why it's good. And because of this, the highs get higher. You will enjoy certain foods or drinks even more than you did before, and maybe even more than those around you. But here's what we don't talk about. While the highs get higher, on average, what you eat and what you drink will get worse. And it will get worse because you'll see all of the flaws, all of the mediocrity in a way that you didn't before. This will quickly take you to a bit of a difficult place where all you'll want to do is just have good experiences. You'll start dragging yourself across towns, across cities, looking for the better place so you don't have to compromise. And you'll get there and you'll still kind of tear it to pieces. And while the highs do get higher, very soon you realize they get further and further apart. They're harder and harder to find. And you'll start to spend more time and more money chasing those highs. Eventually, you'll become kind of a burden on your friends. They don't really want to hang out with you if all you do is complain. Now, I got myself to this place, and I'll tell you what worked for me, what got me out of it. In the case of coffee, I started to drink bad coffee. Now, I didn't go and seek it out, but when it was gonna happen, I just let it happen. 
It might have been a plane, an airport, a hotel, a diner. I didn't fight it anymore. I just started to drink the bad coffee. So I'll tell you why this worked for me. Without a little ugliness, there can be no beauty. If everything you drink is special, then nothing is special. And I, I needed that context. I think we all need that context. And yeah, we might wake up, brew coffee and think, ah, oh, maybe lack some sweetness, maybe lacks a little complexity. But in the great scheme of things, you know, in the broad spectrum, it's amazing. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try and make coffee better. I'm not saying we shouldn't be chasing excellence, but it's okay to stop and just enjoy where we are sometimes. It's okay to just enjoy your morning coffee. Do you need to taste terrible things to enjoy the great things, to be reminded of what makes them special. And so that's, that's the deal. That's the contract that you enter into when you learn to taste. You're gonna develop a skill, but it's gonna mess you up for a little while. But hopefully, well, maybe this will help you get out of a bad place. I'll be interested to hear what worked for you. As always, thank you so much for watching, and I hope you have a great day. connection there that even the bad things help us appreciate the good things so what is it that Mr. Hoffman and myself drinking bad coffee have to do with horrible things taking place look at history you don't even have to look that far Turn on the news. Because whenever we as humans have things going really, really well, we eventually get tired of those good things and we start to complain. It's not as good as it used to be. It doesn't quite hit the need the same way it used to. But we also see that God promised he would help break this vicious cycle long before Esther ever came along, long before there were any kings of Israel. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy chapter eight or 28, he said, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there, sh <clears throat> there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your feet, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you night and day. You shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. But then he says in Deuteronomy 30, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that were written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we see God brings curses. He brings the bad things. But he has a purpose. It is to draw people to himself. Is it any of our fault the world is as horrible as it is? No, that started roughly around the time of uh, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Do we have some responsibility? Yes. But God brings the bad things to draw people back to him. So I now invite you to look around at our nation today where we see obvious rebellion. People who think they can do their own thing. Problems that necessarily follow those. We have a culture that says people can be whatever they want. They can change their name, they can change their gender, they can change the way they look. They say they can love whom they will, they can kill their own babies in some places states and other countries can even kill those that strain the system, the sick and the elderly. We see inflation running rampant, hatred, destruction. Wouldn't you know it? God warned us about this. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I believe God is cursing a country that was built on the foundation of God's law and Christian morality. Not that all of the founding fathers were Christians, but that they could see the truth of the goodness of what the Bible teaches and based our government on that truth. So we have to ask ourselves, will we be a people who whine and complain about how horrible things are? Or will we realize that we have the ear of the king? 
Will we humbly approach him with tears and pleading and ask him, please, will you save this land? Do we realize that we are standing here and it's not just us? Because Jesus gave out our decree that we are to carry to all people. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So we realize God is here saying, come on, let's go ask my dad for permission. And you know what? Honestly, most of the time, he is dragging us into the courtroom of God going, Dad, hey, they have a request. Go ahead, ask. You know what? I got this. Holy Spirit, give them words. Help them ask you. How do we know he is here with us, helping us to plead with God to save our country, to save our world? The end of his decree, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So are we going to do our part, help change our country, help change our world, and go out as quickly as we can and do what he has commanded us to make disciples, to baptize, to teach people? Because we must realize we have the truth. We, in Christ, have received our promotion. And we have received our mission statement that we are to declare to this whole world. Are we all doing our part to do this? We are to encourage each other and help each other. And thankfully, we have more good news back in Esther 8, starting in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Esther and Mordecai were real people at a real place in history that had real events taking place, whether they wanted them to or not. But we also see that God is pointing us towards something. Because we know Jesus of Nazareth was our long-awaited King, our Messiah, our Christ. He was God who has come to us, putting on flesh to give us an example to live out God's commands, what it looks like, but then to sacrifice in himself for the punishment we deserved because we broke the commandments. But then he rose back to life, giving us hope 
for the future. And when we believe this truth, that God came to us, lived, died, rose again. Like Mordecai, we get raised up with Christ as heirs of the promises of God. We are clothed in the bright white robes of righteousness because of Christ. We are given this righteousness when the Holy Spirit fills us and we are given a crown of glory that comes from Christ himself. We know his authority is lived out in us to take the good news to the world. And our biggest hope, our biggest dream, is that we can see a change happen. That as people see us taking this decree into the world, that our God has come and he has saved us and he wants you. That they will go from fear of punishment, fear of what is happening in this world, to finding the freedom that is in Christ. To knowing death is not the end that they may put their faith in Christ, our King, who has given us all things. So, like a good barista, our great barista, our maker, our creator, does his work through the bitterness of this world. And we know what the best of life is like. But he likes to remind us that while the best of life is ours, we willingly go into this world full of nastiness and bitterness and wrongness. We share that bitter cup of Christ, that sacrifice that others may be able to taste and see that God's latte of salvation is good. So may we go forth, share his truth with our lost, fallen, rebellious world who would rather kill us. And like Mordecai and Esther, approach our king, kneeling before him, weeping for our lost world, begging him to save some. For only he can save us, even if we don't see him working. So let's get out there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did not leave us to despair, that even though we did everything we could to tell you how this world should be run, you still came to us and said, you know, that's not how it works, but I got this. Help us to trust you. Even when we can't see you, help us to know you are working, to remember you have said you are working. Give us your strength, your courage, 
And when all else falls around us, everything seems to be going completely crazy. Help us to trust you, that you've got this. You are guiding all things for your purposes and for our good. Thank you for giving us your son, for giving us life. And as we give our little meager offerings back, we ask that you bless them so that your truth can continue to be spread in this world, that we can take the bitterness and thanks to you, make something truly good in this world. We love you and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.